This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I want to start this episode by talking about records. Just the other day, an American team made up of Matt Cornell, Alan Russo and Jackson Marvel reached the top of Janu, a mountain in Nepal. They've set this new alpine route and it's really exciting to see that there are still new things to be done in mountaineering. But then I also saw some news. Reynold Mesner, the godfather of modern alpinism, has actually lost two of his Guinness World Records after a cartographer asserted that he and his climbing partner, Hans Kamalander, were just 15 feet short of reaching the summit of Annapurna in Nepal. And that was in 1985. Mesner held the title of being the first climber to scale all 14 8,000 meter peaks and was the first to do so without any supplemental oxygen. Now this has kicked off a massive argument between Mesner and the Guinness World Records team, with Guinness World Records apparently saying, many climbers, usually through no fault of their own, stop before reaching the summit. They've now modified his title, calling him a legacy holder, and have replaced him with Ed Vesteris, who completed the 14 8,000 meter peaks in 2005. Now Mesner's response is classic, I love it. First of all, I have never claimed any records, so they cannot disown me. And then he went on to say, mountains change, almost 40 years have passed, and if someone has climbed Annapurna, it was certainly hands and eye. Now in late September, Ed Vesteris, who now has the record, said, climbing mountains is a personal journey and should not be about being on a list or setting records. Now, this has kicked off a whole sort of thing of how do we actually quantify records. And Guinness World Records has now said that you have to be able to reach the highest point, aka the true summit, and it must be proved that you have. And a sense must be made on foot from base camp to the top and then back again, with some consideration given for helicopter descents from higher camps if there's a medical emergency or if you're doing something crazy like doing a ski or snowboard or even doing a paraglide off the summit. And it made me think back to our previous conversations, Matt, about what is the purpose of expeditions what, and what is it about records? That, why is it that we're chasing them? And is it diluting what we're actually after? I just think it's that pursuit of greatness, isn't it? That pursuit of pure adventure. Um, when, we, when we explore, we're literally going into the unknown or we're trying to you know, find this, whatever it is we're looking for. And when we start to think about mountains, especially and diving, because they're kind of polar opposites, yet ultimately the same. That's true. This push for the deepest depths or the highest summits or the fastest summits, I think it's just a, it's the ultimate test of man, isn't it? Is it not the ultimate way to prove you're it? You know, we're still primal beasts. We still have this urge to be the best, to have, you know, to show it off the most. People mm. go to the gym and train for years and years to make physical statues of themselves for the same thing mm. and i just think expeditions and adventure is just another form of this eliteness of hum humankind and do you think matt that it, it takes away from the the true spirit of the expedition to chase these records is it and is there a an argument for endangerment in a sense of is the true purpose of the expedition to reach the goal of, of climbing that mountain of doing the depth of reaching that destination and are we sort of diluting that with this record setting no i think what we're trying to do is standardize it mm. and it's ruining it an expedition is personal for every individual 
some people do it to get there. Some people do it to see how far they can push themselves. Some people do it to prove something. It's, it's a personal journey. So I think to try and standardize that and say, you know, you shouldn't be putting yourself in danger unnecessarily to break a record. I don't think we have the right to say that because that person has made their risk assessments. And as long as they're trained and have taken their training seriously, I think we should encourage people to push themselves to the limit. I understand that comes at a very high risk, but that is the ultimate human pursuit. People do it in different ways. And this is one way people do it. And they do it to the extremes because they can. Well, someone that can help us answer these questions is our guest, Yusuf Al-Rafai, who is joining us from Kuwait. We're very happy to have him here. He's taking the time out of his day to be with us. He is a world record holder for not only being the 24th person, but the youngest person at the age of 24 to summit the seven volcanic summits. These are the seven highest volcanoes in the world. He has also traversed 400 kilometers across the desert known as the Empty Quarter in Arabia, and now is already casting his eyes onto the next project. So we have a lot to talk about today. Yusuf, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Luke and Matt, for this introduction. And um, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I would actually like um, give my opinion uh, about like breaking please, records please. or why people push uh, to break the records. And we're seeing it uh, like more often. I think there's many angles to this. Uh, one, one way of looking at it is getting sponsors. Uh, unfortunately, right now, there isn't like a, a king or a businessman like it used to be in the 1800s that would pay you uh, to, to, for example, discover a new land or do something like that. So you mainly rely on, on like sponsors, big companies that want to like do some marketing or their social responsibility, uh, CSR, uh, to help you to reach your goal, uh, as well as getting their product or their services out there. So... For example, if I told um, any company here in Kuwait that I want to climb Everest, uh, they'll basically say no, because there is another Kuwaiti uh, uh, guy who did that already in 2003, which is my cousin, by the way. So they, they, won't, they won't be interested in that. So this is why you see like people are pushing uh, records more and more. Um, uh, I think here in the region, we are pushing for uh, you know, the big famous mountains. Uh, for example, in the UK, uh, we're seeing uh, more extreme uh, records because it's um, the, the normal thi things has been done. Everest has been done. No one would get sponsors for that, of, of course, or any of the Volcanic Seven Summits. But you see, for example, Preet Chandi, she got, um, like, I think, sponsors for, uh, for being uh, the first uh, person, I believe, of color to, uh, to cross uh, Antarctica and to, to do, like, the full length. Mm. So that's where you see like the diversity and uh, uh, and sponsorship basically. Uh, another way is is to be known actually. Uh, if if you do do like climb difficult mountains which are be done like people do it uh, almost every day in the Alps they do like the, the for example the Matterhorn or the North Face of the Eiger uh, pretty often but that doesn't um, you know doesn't catch the eye because it has been done over and over again. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think this, this kind of push for it is always the, the end goal and what people are worried about and equally want to press forward. You come from Kuwait. Before yeah. we started recording, I told you I'd also been to Kuwait. It's not really 
the most kind of adventure-inspiring country. It's a beautiful place, huge, fantastic buildings, beautiful cars, beautiful people, restaurants, fantastic shopping areas, wonderful. How on earth did you get into the outdoors in the sense you have? Because you've gone to absolute extremes. Yeah. So uh, there's many also sides to the story. Uh, in the beginning, I was like a very curious child. So uh, my father has a huge uh, library uh, at our home, and he collects uh, National Geographic magazines. I think it's a monthly uh, subscription. So at the time, I didn't read any English. I went to public school, so like English wasn't like a big uh, a big thing. Uh, I've learned it, you know, uh, from watching TV and reading books afterwards. So I was always interested on in looking at those magazines, you know, like seeing a cheetah, um, you know, uh, taking the uh, looking at the next uh, the next page and seeing, for example, someone climbing a mountain. So I'm always curious about that. Um, fast forward, uh, I went to uh, I graduated from high school. Uh, during those times, I did what like many of my Kuwaiti mates that do and my friends. Uh, I go to the beach. Uh, we do a lot of jet skiing. Um, you know, just just like having fun, uh, nothing extreme, uh, like ATVs, motorcycles uh, on winter, because like on winter, usually in Kuwait, like on winter, we go to farms. And in summer, we go to, to chalets, which is like a beach house. So it was like that sort of fun. But there's nothing to do. Like, I mean, there's no hiking. There's you can't you can't really do those sort of things in Kuwait. So it's only water sports mainly. Uh, I went to, uh, after I graduated, I entered law school because um, I had uh, like good grades and I think this is what I wanted to do. I absolutely didn't like it, so I dropped out. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the law school in Kuwait is, is, a, is a bit different. It, it's like the, the, like the British system of, uh, of university. So if you drop uh, uh, mid-semester, you'll have to wait until the next year so you can ap apply again to another subject because they can't give you any credits uh, uh, if you want to study something else so i had almost six months of being like free and you know having lost basically have, uh, i have nothing to do so one day uh, i woke up late, late at night <laughs> i think it was three or something 3 a.m and i saw a post on instagram it was by a company called rahala explorers i believe and I saw uh, climb Africa or the, uh, the roof of Africa. It's like the classic uh, way to, to market Kilimanjaro. So I saw the phone number and I didn't think about the time at the moment. And they just like ping the phone. And the, the guy was groggy and hello. <laughs> I want to sign up for this trip. <laughs> I want to sign up. I said, Are you serious? Who, who calls at this time? Said, yeah, if I'm not serious, I wouldn't call you at this time. So I signed up for Kilimanjaro, and that was the basically the stepping stone for all of the the, the mountains and the, the volcanoes I've done. That's a very cool story. And Matt, it, you know, as someone Matt lives in Norway, and Matt hates mountains. Uh, yeah, I'm not a fan, by the way. Yeah, I am Matt, not a fan of Matt, mountains. Matt's not a fan. Um, but you. Again, Kuwait, not a very mountainous place. I think there's some hills there that you know, might be considered mountains, but it's not like anything <laughs> like the same. Why was it that you went from mountains? Like, you've obviously now traversed part of the empty quarter. What, what was it about mountains that really like took you rather than something else? I think just curiosity. Uh, you know, if, um, if on that day I saw uh, like a sailing trip or, uh, for example, like um, a long uh, kayaking trip or whatever, I think I would go for it. 
I've always wanted to do that. I couldn't uh, have done it, you know, because I had school before and, and all that. Mm. So I just pushed for it. On, and on my experience on Kilimanjaro, I think that played the big role of how I look at things. Um, I think if I went um, with with a bit of knowledge, I wouldn't I wouldn't continue climbing mountains <laughs> because like I, I was basically like a piece of white paper uh, and willing to absorb everything that mm. it said to me. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know if it's gonna be censored or not. No, um, no, nothing. So basically, here. <laughs> yeah. So basically, on my first day, I'm new. To, I'm basically new to this. On on the first camp, I forgot what it's called, but it's like basically somewhat of a rainforest. And I was so naive at the moment. So this guy told me that the guide, uh, his name is James. I, I still uh, like have contact with him. He told us, you know, at at the middle of the night, and that you'll have no mood to to, for example, to go and sorry to pee. Mm. So what you can do uh, is like take this bottle and pee and then like uh, <laughs> drop it the next day. I told him, yeah, no worries. Okay, it's fine. But he didn't mention when should I do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he told me to drink lots of water. So I probably dr- drank like four or five liters before going to bed. I've never slept in a, in a, like, in a conventional tent like this, you know, mm. two meters by one. I've yeah. never done that. In Kuwait, we have big uh, like tents made of wood. Tent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Matt, you know be- uh, best because you, well, I know that that's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. called true comfort. True comfort, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's more comfortable like than sitting in a living room. So I did that. You know, I woke up in the middle of the night. I peed in the bottle, and uh, I think both of you have been to Kilimanjaro, right? I the, haven't. The, the, no. no, I've never been there. Yeah, so. I've peed on that bottle. I thought, yeah, I filled it up. So what I did, you know, I put it aside and then like just opened the door and like just sneaked from, from the, you know, <laughs> half of my body is inside and like I continue like doing <laughs> what I'm doing. So the next day I, I also uh, <laughs> I spilled the, the, you know, the rest of the pee um, just in front of the, <laughs> of the tent without just a side. So the next day, you know, I had other people, I didn't know them by them, but now they are friends, um, who who are Kuwaiti too, three of them. And one guy uh, who also uh, live in in, uh, in the UAE from Pakistan. So, you know, I woke up late, you know, good morning, having breakfast. I sat down, everyone was looking at each other he, uh, from these like uh, two, two of the of the teammates. He told me, Yusuf, you know, we just know you and everything and that. And we know that, you know, James told us to, to pee in a bottle. But that doesn't mean that you pee on our tent. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, on that first camp, <laughs> the tents were set up in a way that there's one higher than the other. So my tent was up and their tent. He said, you know, we thought that it was raining. And you know the sound of, you know, like water or, or pee on, on a tent, how it looks, you know, it sounds scary, by the way. That is so, brilliant. The, the, uh, that's how naive I was, you know, everything that was told to me, you know, I follow strictly. I think, Luke, we're starting to get a collection of expedition urination comedy <laughs> stories. Because I have a pretty similar one in a, about an episode of three episodes ago with Mark from the jungle it's the same yeah. Although, yeah you can't beat it oh god that's fantastic 
and these are the stories though that make you laugh aren't they They're the stories that you remember of, you absolutely know, like, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this is why we go on expedition exactly <laughs> yeah it's absolutely it's icebreakers you know yeah because, you know those literally there were, yeah yeah they were unknown to me i didn't know them pretty well but you know after that no they become like brothers to me yeah, but, I, but don't pee on their tent anymore, okay? You, no, no, no. <laughs> you made the point. As, as I said, yeah, it's just like a, a matter of experience. Yeah. But, you know, so you've done Kilimanjaro. That went really well. You've then gone on. You've done Elbrus as well, haven't you? Yeah, I've uh, done. Which I, I'm very jealous of. I did Mont Blanc this summer, and then I went to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and I really wanted to do Elbrus, but obviously with everything that's going on, we, you know, Brits aren't allowed to go and do it. But Elbrus must have also been insane. Yeah, Elbrus, Elbrus actually it was insane because a storming was coming in, so I summited in three days. Wow! Uh, and it was very challenging. I climbed it, I think, in twelve hours. Uh, I would, me being me, I didn't want to. Use, I want to do it like you know, I'm guided. Of course, I'm guided, but I didn't. I wanted to do it clean. Usually people uh, take the snowmobile to a certain point and then yeah. continue to, to climb the mountain. I didn't do that. And um, the, the lady I, I climbed with, the, the guy, the, she was the guide for this trip. She was super fast and it was super hard to catch up. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I really, I, I couldn't walk actually after cli- uh, climbing Elbrus. I, I still remember the pain and the agony I was in. It's nothing like Kilimanjaro. Uh, they say it's easy, but the weather can get really do- uh, tough, and people actually die there. Well, and it's like it's a bit like Denali in a sense, which uh, is in Alaska, which is it's the exposure environment, which is so harsh for Elbrus, which is you are literally exactly. in rural Russia. <laughs> you, don't mess <laughs> yeah. you don't mess around with it. But you then, so you've done, you're starting to tick off the list now uh, of the seven yeah. summits, and then. This switch has happened. Just tell us how you've gone from trying to get the seven summits to the seven volcanic summits. What what was that story? Yeah, it was Aconcagua. As much as I hate that mountain, <laughs> it was the, it, it was the the reason why I've done the the volcanic seven summits. So uh, I went to uh, Aconcagua. I went to a, like a very famous. Also, I used a very fam- a famous uh, company to go there. Um, famous in Argentina. It wasn't international. Um, I didn't enjoy the mountain. The mountain is super dirty. You know, you can feel like people live there for months. You know, you can't see that. Unlike uh, many other mountains that I've done, uh, there's a barber shop. You can eat pizza there. But you know, all that come at a, like an environmental cost, yeah. which is being dirty, smelly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I've done also. Um, I've reached the like the last camp uh, of. Uh, of Aconcagua, it was very hard because we had a storm for days on end. Mm. We couldn't summit. Uh, stayed for a tent for uh, stayed inside the tent for four days. You know, just leaving to to you know j- just to go to the toilet uh, and coming back. And I failed on on Aconcagua, and I was very devastated. I stayed there for 18, 20 days, and not summiting. Uh, that was really depressing. So after Aconcagua, the turning point, uh, also more than one thing happened. Um, during that time, I was searching for you know, other, um, other challenges I can do. Uh, I've learned about the Snow Leopard Challenge. Um, you know, I, I backed uh, from that because it is difficult 
two of the mountains is easy. Um, the three of the mountains is difficult. Uh, for the listeners who don't know the Snow Leopard Challenge, it was uh, like um, an achievement for the military, uh, USSR military. So if you climb those 7,000 meter peaks of the former Soviet uh, states, uh, you'll get that badge uh, yeah. of climbing the uh, those mountains. Uh, it, people do it, but uh, two of the of the mountains are really difficult. I believe it's uh, Pobi Day and uh, Peak uh, Smail Samani. I think there's I, they call it something else right now. Uh, so I saw that it's not feasible really. Um, so I've uh, I've came across the volcanic seven summits. I thought, why not? So I then booked a trip to Giloway, which is the highest mount- mountain in Papua New Guinea. And, and am I right in thinking that you also did, when you turned, you know, so you've done, if I'm going to say volcanic summit list, right, it, you've already done Kilimanjaro, which is Africa. Yeah. You've done Elbrus. It's sort of like you were setting yourself up for this. And then you've done, uh, I'm going to say it's wrong, Ajas del Saldo in, in Argentina. And Chile, it's been both, isn't it? And then that was my sixth. Yeah, that's your sixth. And then, and then you're so you're already now. When you head to Papua New Guinea, you're three down. No, Papua New Guinea was two down because two I down. failed on Aconcagua, so I switched to the volcanic seven summits. Ah, uh, I see. researching, yeah. Uh, Ojos del Sado was my sixth uh, mountain. So the order is uh, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, Giloway. Uh, Pico de Orizaba in Mexico. Uh, number five was Damavand in Iran. Afterwards, Ojos del Salado and Sidley finally in Antarctica. Oh, so you went back to Argentina. I thought you did it. I thought you went to Argentina and did Argentina first. No, no, no. I went back to Chile. I climbed Ojos del Salado from the Chilean side, not oh, the Argentinian. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So tell us more about then these these other mountains. So you're in Papua New Guinea, which is an insane place just by itself. Uh, yeah, Papua New Guinea. Before going to that, I've also had my share in, in technical climbing. So as I told you, I was like willing to absorb everything. So afterwards, I took a course in, uh, in Chamonix uh, on the goal of climbing the west uh, flank or the Metegli Ridge of the Eiger. Mm. So I signed up for like a course. I talked to the guide, you know, I want to do that. Um, like basically make me ready to do this. So he said, okay, no problem. I will make you ready uh, or I'll get you ready for, for that, uh, uh, you know, that challenge. So you're going to climb Ogle de Moi. This is basically, uh, it's on the region of, uh, uh, of Mont Blanc. Hmm. Uh, if you know, it's, um, you go there by train and then descend uh, a ladder and then you're going to see it's directly opposite to the Grand Jurassic. So he said, we're going to go there, climb. Uh, now I know the reason why we went there, because his girlfriend uh, works there <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the hut. So he wants to spend time with her, no worries. So uh, I climbed the, the first ridge of the mountain, which was the easiest one. I think it's rated 5.4 or 5.5. Five. It's basically uh, a bit of scrambling, uh, but with a rope, uh, just for safety. And the highest, uh, the, the crux of the climb is 5.5. Five. And then, like he said, no, we're going to do a more difficult side. Then I'm going to consider to take you to, to the Metegli Ridge. So I was climbing almost halfway. Something inside me tell Yusuf, stop as long as you can descend now. Um, I simply thought this is not for me. 
technical climbing, being on a rush, uh, um, you know, pulling me, uh, being on a short uh, short rope, thinking that you know I'm not going to be a hundred percent from a guide perspective. Uh, I want to enjoy. I don't want to be running up a mountain. Yeah, no, I don't no, think sure. that. Yeah, I think there's people who enjoy that, but I definitely didn't enjoy that. Just like, for example, some people enjoy uh, heli skiing or you know these uh, uh, extreme things. I think it's about adrenaline. It's not about enjoying. I don't think anybody. <laughs> I don't think you know, especially coming here. You know, a lot of getting back to to the subject. I think it's important that I address. You know, some people or some I call them critics. They criticized uh, someone who who's done, for example, a record that they don't think that it meets to the standard of what the people on the rest of the world are doing. But when you consider that not everyone is born, for example, uh, in the Alps. So you you set a standard for them that oh you climb um, sadly the, the, there's that uh, uh, and, and many guides that I see in the Alps oh you you want to climb Everest oh who does that you know it's super easy yeah why you don't climb the Jurassic you know from the south uh, east uh, <laughs> north route or whatever they, they you know they 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 want people to do I think it is impossible for most people. To do those kind of uh, of mountains or technical uh, routes, if they're not um, climbing all of their lives, basically. So I mean, literally hitting that with the the kind of being born in the right place theme. Training to do what you've done is obviously a hugely fundamental part of what you're doing. How was it that you you train for these mountains? You know, I come from the UK. I grew up with like Ben Nevis and going to Scarpell Pike and over into Wales, and I had small mountains big hills where you could kind of get into the idea of going up and down you didn't grow up in an environment like that so how did you train for these these first kind of seven how did you do it yeah so basically my training uh, was trying to imitate what uh, nature didn't give us so i use a backpack you know uh, and uh, a treadmill that with inclination i do a stairmaster I do hit sessions, um, yeah, and th- that's basically it. I also run, but running like on flat uh, for sure. I've tried to, you know, uh, go to like some of the hills, and, and they call it hills, but it's basically piles of sand. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable at all. Uh, even like the rocky parts collapses. Uh, it's not like solid ground where you can like enjoy it. Uh, some sand dunes, sand dunes is a good, uh, good type of training. But um, I, I didn't find myself of, of doing that. I've done it for the empty quarter, but not for mountains. It's, it's basically not the same. Uh, yeah. You know, your legs basically give out on the first uh, 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. There's nothing yeah. worse than running up and down standhill. Yeah. That. <laughs> Absolutely. So out of, the, out of the seven volcanic summits, which one cost you the most in kind of, emotional and physical drain which was the most hardship that's that was uh, ojos del salado uh, ojos del salado uh, is easy uh, because of one thing that you can drive all the way to 5600 meters so you just have 1200 meters of elevation gain uh, but that come comes at a cost because when you reach um, that elevation with in a car 
uh, you're not acclimat- uh, uh, well acclimatized and it's going to catch up to you. So yeah. on the way up, I've done amazing. I've climbed like um, I was fa- reasonably fast uh, because there was two, two climbers, which are like, I think, professional climbers. I've climbed like two hours uh, after they did. So this is not <laughs> so bad. But on the way down, I think I had the altitude sickness and it got me bad to the point that I was hallucinating. And yeah. uh, <laughs> funnily enough, I was hallucinating by uh, Arab, like old Arab warriors running after me. So I descended in a really super fast pace to the point that the guide couldn't catch up with me. So this was a really bad experience. Yeah. Uh, coming down uh, here we come to the to the like to the medical point uh, I was very fortunate that uh, there was like a, a doctor a psychiatrist um, who was like just climbing the mountain but she was uh, thoughtful enough to to bring uh, dexamethasone and other drugs so she injected me with the, with those um, with those substances and uh, I slept like a baby I woke up with nothing nothing (laughs) nothing going on except happiness i still don't i still don't know what she gave me in particular and i don't want to know because that would get me like in a (laughs) in a bad situation yeah that's a bad way to go the feeling is 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 amazing was amazing yeah i mean did it did it kind of a better way it scare you at that point that i could you know there was there's an element of danger there uh yeah the element of danger. basically i was you know, when you think about it right now, you know, uh, at the moment, I know that there wasn't uh, Arab, old Arab warriors from like the 12th century running after me in reality. But I saw that like in my head and in my eyes. So I didn't think of it like in logically as much as I just want to go down. Mm-hmm. It was a weird feeling. It's what, like basically hallucinations. And I was running, uh, I, I've torn my pants, basically. It was, it was almost gone because I was running, running, and then like um, falling off and the scree is, uh, is ripping the, the pants apart. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't great at all. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, that would be, but it didn't put you off, so that's a good thing. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, no, no, no. You kept no, going. No, I kept, I kept going. You know, climbing six of them and you know, uh, just stopping on the last mountain isn't an option. No, I used to paddle a lot of uh, whitewater canoe, and I remember the first time I had a really good kind of hold down under a waterfall for like thirty, forty seconds of not being yeah. able to get out, being Jesus. stuck in that run through, and I, yeah, it terrified me, but it certainly didn't stop me. It just made me get better, so I didn't put myself in that situation again. I think. Yeah, absolutely. You basically learn from from the mistakes. Um, if if it's anything you know minor or even like uh, major is gonna stop you, I think you know it's it's uh, it's a loss for you. Um, I think it's, nothing is worth like losing your life for. But at the same time, um, if it's uh, something you like and you find joy in, uh, joy in, uh, you should uh, continue doing it. Yeah, I agree. And Yusuf, you know, you talked a bit earlier about funding. You know, from when you started to to then completing on Sidley with, uh, I believe you went with ALE. How? Yeah. What was that journey like for funding? And also, you know, the perception of of what you were doing. You know, both in Kuwait but abroad. Like, do you feel like as you went on, I'm guessing it got a bit easier to get funding because you've completed more of it. 
but did people really get behind the mission? Yeah, so in the beginning, basically, uh, why why you want to do it? Um, you know, Yusuf, why you don't go, for example, to the south of France, uh, Riviera, or go to London? And, and, you know, people are not the same. Some people enjoy, like, sitting in a cafe and looking at people. Some people enjoy going to the beach. Uh, I found that, you know, adventure, um, learning about new cultures is the thing that I want to do. So people in the beginning was like, why? Mm. Why you want to do that? Who wants who wants to travel to suffer? Travel is about <laughs> <laughs> travel is about le- like leisure, uh, as they say. It's not about you know, like suffering and and going through like hell basically. Uh, but when you think about it that way, I think uh, yeah, people in any journey, in the beginning of any journey, for example, starting a podcast, who's gonna like listen to a podcast just about adventure? You know, people, for example, is gonna accept. Uh, okay, podcast uh, about uh, random things every time you get a new story. Mm. But every 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 journey has a niche. Every journey has people interested in, and most importantly, you enjoy it. So, speaking about um, sponsorship and funding, in the beginning, uh, I used to save up money. I didn't. My friends go to uh, to Europe and enjoy. I used to save up money and then like go to to these locations. I believe I didn't get sponsorship until I've climbed uh, Pico de Orizaba, which was the fourth mountain. I've got like little support. Uh, I had the Oridu, which is like um, telecommunication. They gave me uh, like a phone uh, with subscription so I can call from abroad, but not not cash. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and even even like, you know, Frankly, even for example in Kuwait, the big brands like North Face and they don't sponsor. Mm. And this is the thing that I don't understand about uh, you know uh, those big. Why would you give like a franchise to someone who doesn't support uh, what what your company is basically fundamental on, which is having athletes or having like uh, influencers that share the brand. Anyways, this is getting out, uh, out of the subject. <laughs> no, it's, oh, it's, a very, it's, it's a very it's solid point, yeah. though. It really is. Yeah. Uh, so um, afterwards, you know, as soon as you you know you, you reach your goal, you get closer to your goal. People are gonna turn their heads into it. Okay, yeah. For example, supporting me on Sidley, that was like a no question. All of the companies were happy that I'm gonna do that because I'm gonna complete it, and um, it's the end of the journey. It's a win-win situation for them. But in the beginning, I think it's, it's very difficult to get support. Uh, you'll get support from people who are close to you. Yeah, you can do it. Go on. You know, it's go- you're going to get, for example, sponsors later on. But I yeah. don't think anyone would, uh, would like invest money in you if you didn't, for example, did at least something. But you had um you had a quite renowned British uh, staple brand sponsoring you for the latter half. Yeah, uh, Costa Coffee, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember seeing that and it was just like, yeah, that yeah. is that is Costa Coffee is sponsoring a mountaineer. I was like, that's <laughs> fabulous. That's amazing. Yeah. Actually, yeah, they, their um, uh, general manager is British here in Kuwait and he was like so interested in the in the idea, especially mm-hmm. on Sidley. Um, they said basically yes and we're happy to, to sponsor you. Uh, you know, that's amazing. And I think that goes really to that point of, yes, it's amazing to have, you know, big brands, whether they, you know, whatever brand they might be to sponsor you. Um, yeah. 
but there's also lots of other brands and you know you really do need to open your mind up a bit about what it is that you need and you know like who would have thought i would have never thought to get a coffee company you know to to sponsor me but it worked and it worked for you and that that's amazing so you've done all of this now you've got your guinness world record you're you're holding on to it um You know, you're only a year and a bit older than me, but I don't think I I can quite beat your record. So hopefully you get to hold on to it for a little bit. <laughs> you should, you should. You know, uh, records are meant to be broken after all. Yeah, and it's crazy to think that the youngest person to do the seven summit is seventeen, which yeah. it which it's really going this whole thing for me of where do you draw the line? There was that new documentary that came out uh, over the summer, Deepest Breath. And, you know, we had this whole thing about free divers and and what age can they start competing and what age it's safe. And, you know, there are people now that are going mountaineering at very advanced levels when they're like 10, 11, 12. Um, So I'm sure all these records will eventually get to a point where they can't be beat. Uh, Absolutely. but, But what's next for you? You know, you do this. Are you interested in doing the Grand Slam? Do you want to do North, South Pole and Everest? Is that something that takes your fancy? absolutely not Um, (laughs) I I don't because anything that's repeating itself I don't think it's interested Mm. Uh, now whenever someone asks me even here in Kuwait you know if it's like uh, a podcast and I I tell them I'm interested in something when I search it I find no information and I find no picture so now when I when I for example go on YouTube uh, I write down Everest or Cho'oyu or any of the mountains, I have a full uh, experience of what I will go through. What's the point of spending money going there? I, I know for sure it's not the same, you know, uh, as the saying says, it's, uh, uh, who knows the, pers- uh, the, the flower best, someone who read uh, about it in a book or someone who, who, uh, who's in, the, for example, the garden. But I believe that uh, it steals a lot of joy from just like watching things and finding all the information regarding it. It's basically yeah. just going to be a picture of me on the summit, uh, you know, with congratulations and coming back and it's, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. I, I Still, I, I don't want to be the, like the people who judge about <laughs> what other people are doing. But But speaking of myself, this is the way how I look at it. Um, with the you know with like uh, famous famous mountains, um, the thing that, that draws back me... though, doesn't it? That draws back to that same thing of it's a completely personal journey. Those people who go up there and yeah. are quite happy yeah, with yeah. that Instagram picture, that's that's enough for them. That's the adventure. So absolutely, it doesn't need to be a judge either way. But equally, for some of us who want to do something completely wild that just doesn't exist yet, that's true adventure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but not not judging it, but I, I'm saying about my point of view of it. Mm. So right now I'm working uh, on a project. Uh, it's called Earth's Extremes. So it's basically, uh, you know, capturing what's extreme on Earth. Uh, I just came back uh, on July, uh, last July. I came back from Mausen Ram, which is the rainiest spot on Earth. Uh, I've had an amazing experience, although I didn't have rain in Mountain Ram. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't lucky That's to be, brilliant. although I stayed I stayed three days there. But I had on the um, on the other village, which is Sherapunji, which is always like uh, who's the rainiest, Sherapunji or uh, or Mountain Ram. Uh, so I captured the rain uh, out there. It was an amazing experience, amazing people. 
um, it's really hard to live on on you know on extremes. Um, it's not something easy, especially uh, for like um, countries who have poverty, um, communities that uh, you know suffer from like their own governments that they don't provide for provide them with the uh, with the aid necessary to to, to like survive. Um, I just like to remember the point about uh, mountain ramp. Imagine being the rainiest spot on earth for uh, eight months, but the rest of the months of the year, they don't have any rain. They get their rain from somewhere else. Mm. So yeah. being, yeah, <laughs> on the, for example, on, on January and February, they, they have to buy the water because there's no dams. They didn't build that. They were asking for, you know, for that to be built from the 80s, and they still didn't get that. So my main uh, interest right now, the, the big four um, extremes that I want to go to, I've already done India. Uh, I'm going to Ethiopia next, which is the hottest inhabited uh, place year around. Uh, then I'm going to head uh, to Chile, Arica, which is the driest place on earth. And then I'm going to the coldest place on earth, which is uh, Omiyakon in Siberia. All of those places are inhabited because I believe there is no point and no budget to go to the real, <laughs> real dry, <laughs> yeah. yeah, driest place and the coldest place. Uh, the coldest is Vostok in, in Russia, and the driest place is Resolute Bay in Antarctica. Also, uh, it's basically just going to be white, and no one is there to get their perspective on living on there. I think the cultures you meet in these places are actually what makes the story. Absolutely. Mm, Their point of view, you know, I've seen a village, uh, I've been there, I forgot the name, it's not on my head right now, Uh, but uh, a pregnant woman had to walk two days, uh, like for the, for the ambulance to take her to a hospital that is four days, uh, for, sorry, four hours from, from the village. So you can see how hardship uh, truly is to live like somewhere really remote. Mm. and hard to uh, yeah absolutely i mean how do you draw contrast from your upbringing and and you know living and growing up in kuwait city to when you're kind of in these places yeah i basically become grateful for everything now people are also getting like uh weird vibes from me from their perspective for example when i see someone washing their hands uh, in a public place uh having the water like full uh, and opening like the yeah. the water on full, I said, you know why you're wasting water? Why don't? And I get, sometimes I get oh thank you. Sometimes I get like stares and being ignored. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> people are not so nice. But yeah, uh, being grateful for what people have uh, for what we have is is really uh, amazing. And especially here in Kuwait, you know, we desalinize the water. So we don't if we don't have the oil to to turn this uh, uh, salt water to to fresh water we yeah. wouldn't have yeah we wouldn't have water you know, before we we get it from iraq now the relations aren't that good to get it from there mm. so yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll basically die of thirst but it, it, it's one of those things where the world is, is changing you know i was reading this report and again it slipped my mind he's, he's written it but he was talking about uh we're now in this period of extreme wet and extreme dry and yeah. that our world you know in terms of climate change and global warming is that we're seeing these, you know, you've got massive wildfires which are happening in Australia and California and 
You know, just this year you had the wildfires in Canada, which then made New York turn orange uh, and very smoggy. And then you've got massive periods of, you know, flooding and, and, you know, sadly we've got these massive earthquakes and all these different things are happening. And it's, you know, how do we really get stewardship and how do we make it so that people can really care? Because we've known these facts for a very long time. And it's interesting to you know see you know this series. So, are you filming Earth Extremes? Is it something which you're wanting to document to the world? Yeah, absolutely. I'm filming, and I'm also interviewing uh, you know people um, in each location, uh, like uh, meteorologists. Uh, I, I've interviewed uh, like the only uh, um, environmental physicist in Kuwait, and I took like his opinion on on what's happening, mm-hmm. his point of view that we can't do. Um, anything about that and any you know if we took extreme measures to stop the global warming it's not going to be more than 20 percent so he said yeah the world has been uh, on this stage before if uh, you know it's all of data and i don't really understand i don't come from a scientific uh, uh, scientific background i studied political science which is not (laughs) really a science (laughs) yeah yeah it's just about being diplomatic so (laughs) So he, he, he basically told me that uh, the earth has been there 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago when he, ha- when he showed me the, the records, mm. it, it was exactly what we had right now. He said, you know what we can do on the case of Mount San Ram and uh, northeastern India, how to get rain is basically, uh, you know, trying to grow trees back again. Uh, the Indian government tried to do that, but it's not as big as the trees that were there in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Uh, though, because they always like uh, they do logging, so they cut them and then like they grow back again. So this is the only way that uh, this this uh, this thing will change. And uh, yeah, I think all the world is changing now. The sea is get the uh, the sea um, is getting higher. All of that, some places is going to disappear, but uh, this is inevitable, I think. Yeah, it, it really is, isn't it? And it's that thing of, you know, we, we talked about this sort of climate, you know, doomerism in a sense, Matt. You know, we, we had that uh, chat with Lydia and Matt about it. And it's really empower, you know, the answer is empowering people to, you know, really make that decision, you know, that there is something that they still can do. And, you know, that it's, you know, in Kuwait, it's such a great example. You know, you are an OPEC country. You're able to use oil to do desalinization. There's very few places in the world where you can do it. Uh, you know, another another one is uh, it's like carbon capture. The only place you can really do it is in Iceland because they've got geothermal energy. So it's like, how do we really help the people, like in Ethiopia, like in India, where they don't have access to these things and you know i think it's a really important project i'm really looking forward to see what you do with it yusuf yeah thank you so much yeah i think it's it's building wells uh, and those sort of things but yeah it's not it's not even sustainable it's gonna like give water for 10 years probably so yeah scientists need to think about things that they can do to to help out uh, to help the unfortunate uh, people of the world absolutely i mean we we have literally said this on every single podcast we've done, but I feel like we need to take a round two with you, um, because oh. there's a there's a, a huge ton of stuff I'd like to discuss. Um, but as we as we start to wrap it up, we have a little theme going at the moment, which is about expedition essentials. Now you 
you're allowed to have all of your standard equipment, but we, I want to know what the three things are that you take with you on a trip that are kind of added luxuries. Absolutely. So I always pair a t-shirt, um, you know, inside the plastic, uh, plastic bag. Uh, for the day I leave, for example, to the, I leave the mountain. Although I'm stinky, but I, that shirt or a clean shirt would give me confidence uh, to, go <laughs> inside, to go inside the that hotel. Is, because you know, I, I have, go inside I have the dry hotel. sock day in the jungle. I save a pair of socks for the last day of the jungle too. I do exactly the same thing. Yeah. I have one pair of dry socks that I put on on the last day. And it's, they're only dry for about six minutes. But <laughs> yeah. that six minutes is the best six minutes of the entire expedition. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You know, yeah. it's, some, it's one thing to go like stinky inside the hotel, but you can't go stinky with style. Yeah, I, I love that. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, another thing uh, where I, I used to, I used to take it, but now I don't, uh, is the satellite uh, messaging communicator because uh, now my friends is using it to check on me every five minutes. So <laughs> now I don't bring it anymore. Uh, or I just keep it for, for tracking reasons. I don't text anybody. Yeah. Um, what else? Yeah, pro- probably a, a sneakers bar. Sneakers uh, bar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably as a snack. It's filled with calories. It uh, doesn't change much, you know. I've tried protein bars and etc. They don't taste good uh, on, uh, on altitude. Sneakers bar doesn't change. So, they're pretty. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty violent in the cold, though, for the teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah they, they get, I'm not they a big fan here. of a Snickers bar when it's minus thirty out here. It's uh, <laughs> that's a that's a delicate problem. The trick is Snickers to keep it close to your body. <laughs> yeah, great advice. Yeah. Keep it next to my yeah. water bottle in my jacket. <laughs> I like those. Yeah, they were good. They were good. And as we kind of get to you know the the next bit is we we love to try and give people reasons to be inspired to go into the outdoors, um, and people to to take up something new if it's mountaineering or jungle trekking or whatever they want to do so what's your best advice for someone who's sitting listening to this like you were that young man sitting in your father's study reading magazines of national Mm -hmm. geographic what what advice have you got for people to just get out there and and achieve it and do it yeah so basically uh you know ideas come um you can think of something and come up with an idea but most ideas or most uh, projects um, come uh, spontaneously, as they say. Uh, and I remember uh, about going to, for example, uh, going to extremes or, you know, my extremes, uh, Earth's extremes uh, challenge. Uh, on the beginning, it wasn't about going to those extremes. It was something else. I was talking to Vern Tejas, which is um, a famous mountaineer, and he's a guide for Alpine Ascents. So mm. I told him, you know, what can I do other than, like, I, I was interested in climbing Mount Logan. He told me, why don't you climb with us to Greenland? I told him, when? And how much is it going to cost? <laughs> Those are the first two questions you want to go when, when you hear anything with, ends with land, Greenland, Iceland, because uh, they are expensive. Mm. So he mm. told me, yeah, uh, there's a team who, there's people who actually does that. They always discover new lands. This is a thing, especially in Greenland and those areas. So there's basically the ice, I think they call them ice sheets. But they go and check if those uh, sheets are, are really like land, there is like soil underneath, or there isn't. And I think they discovered uh, a land in 2018. 
Yeah. Now they've seen like sa satellite data of something more north, closer to the North Pole, uh, to be the northernmost island in the world. So I told him, great. He said, yeah. And in 2001, I climbed the northernmost mountain in the world. I told him, where is that? Uh, it's basically in North Peary land, which is the northern tip of uh, Greenland. And he said, yeah, I want to go there uh, again. Uh, let me check. And, and then COVID hit. Mm, so it yeah. wasn't possible to go there. I kept this on my mind, northernmost mountain. Okay, so where is the southernmost mountain in the world? So I opened Google Earth, uh, figured out how the map is, uh, double checked. You know, I saw a mountain. It's called Mount Ho, but it's not that what what you guys <laughs> thinking? It's W uh, sorry H O W E, but it's uh, it's, uh, it's uh, said yeah Ho. Yeah. So that mountain, there's an observation um, observation station there. Um, it's the southernmost mountain in the world. So. Those, th this project came to my mind. Uh, I likely not going to do it because climbing North Peary land, just going alone is going to cost probably $300,000 because it's super difficult to get to this area. Uh, Mount Ho is not as expensive because it's closer to the, closer to the South Pole. So people who are going to do the last degree, it's not very far from, from that area. Mm. So. I thought about it. No, it's not feasible. It's hard. Uh, what's the point? So I turned my head to extremes, but different kind of extremes: hottest, wettest, uh, driest, etc. So yeah, yeah it's Go more. Flow. Yeah, it's it's more uh, easy on the on the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it is expensive. Yusuf, it's been great to have you on. Matt's totally right. We need to get you back. Uh, I want to talk more about Earth extremes in detail. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your adventures. Congratulations again for your world record. I'm sure it won't be the last. And good luck with everything. Thank that you you're so doing. much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Our absolute pleasure. Guys, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Medicine on the Frontier. We're really enjoying this podcast and bringing it to you. And if you haven't seen, we're now weekly. These main big episodes are still fortnightly, but we've got a little mini series now which is on every other Monday as well. So every Monday there's content coming to you and we're so happy with how the show's going. We're nearly at a thousand all-time downloads. And we've got viewership from around the world from, of course, the US and the UK, but also Taiwan, Sweden, Bahrain, Peru, Zambia, Nepal, and so many other places. So guys, thank you so much. We want you guys to be involved. So please get in touch if you have any ideas or if you want to come on the podcast, we just want to get everyone involved so please stay tuned for more we've got a great episode coming up in two weeks with jamie face a child a doctor and polar explorer he's crossed antarctica twice it's going to be absolutely amazing so make sure to subscribe on all social media as we explore medicine on the frontier